You may have a seat. In a minute, one of my favorite pictures of my husband, Drew, and my son, Isaac, will appear behind me on the screen. For those of you at home, I will do my best to describe the scene. Isaac is less than a year old, sitting on Drew's lap. In front of both of them, Drew has opened the Jesus Storybook Bible. Nothing too remarkable, a father reading to his son. Nothing too remarkable, that is, except for their faces. <laughs> the expression on Drew's face is some combination of disgust, surprise, and hurt. <laughs> Isaac has his mouth agape in what looks like a stock photo of the word shocked. They are reading something that has taken them aback. In reality, I think Drew was mid-yawn and Isaac was trying to eat the book. Uh, but it's still one of my favorites. <laughs> there is a deeper truth in the look on their faces. When we experience the revelation of God, we will be challenged. Some part of us, if not the whole of us, is called into question, invited to be amended. Our gospel passage today is one that draws these faces out of me. <laughs> Sitting with a team of Bible leaders preparing to lead large-scale studies for the Urbana Missions Conference years ago, this text was placed before me. We had a rich study time together, but in the moment, I could not move past my hurt and confusion with Jesus here. Honestly, it was hard not to see Jesus as a bit of a jerk. Here are people marveling. Couldn't he take that and bring them along slowly? Couldn't he have said something less inflammatory? We'll get to the content of his message, but it was hard not to see Jesus as someone who escalated the situation. We start with good news, gracious words. We start with rapt attention to the little details and physicality of the moment, his hands unrolling the scroll his standing and sitting. The eyes of everyone are fastened to Jesus and his movements. We end with a mob, with brute force and rough physicality, with attempted stoning. Jesus comes and then he goes. What do we make of this? What do we make of Jesus? To grow in our understanding today, we'll consider three things. We'll consider the audience, the audacity, and finally, the anointed. First, the audience. The men of Nazareth, Nazareth would gather at the synagogue on the Sabbath, where any worthy man or teacher might read and expound upon a text. Greater Nazareth was about 1,600 to 2,000 people, or about half the size of a Texas high school. Nazareth proper may have had only a few hundred residents. Jesus would have been well-known in the small town in which he was, as the text says, brought up. The town of Nazareth was a settler town. In the second century BC, the rise in a particular brand of nationalism for the Israelites created these towns. 
The region in which Nazareth resides was known as Galilee of the Gentiles. And so Nazareth was planted as this outpost, an almost exclusively Jewish town meant to be part of the change that would turn Galilee of the Gentiles into Galilee of the Jews. It was known as very traditional, nationalistic, and probably following from that, a bit aloof. But from the perspective of those in Jerusalem and Judea, Nazareth was looked down on for being in Galilee. Looked at through a particular lens, they are a tight community of faithful outsiders. It was here Mary and Joseph raised Jesus. He was nurtured in these traditions and by these people. He sat at this very synagogue many times with these very men and heard the same expositions they did. Some of them may have Joseph or Jesus's carpentry handiwork in their homes. They heard Jesus's voice crack for the first time and they learned to read alongside him. They know who won the race when they all ran together as children. And now Jesus has become something of a big shot. Outside the town, he is returned, and he speaks gracious words of good news. There's an expectation that he will first and foremost align with the narrative of his hometown. Family first. Don't forget where you came from. Put Nazareth on the map. You owe your community. The men have a particular familiarity with both Jesus and what they understand as God's mission and their place, their identity in it. Familiarity is good. It can be a place of intimacy. But familiarity, when it lacks humility, breeds presumption. Isn't this Joseph's son? An argument broke out at our home this week. It was, as usual, over something very significant. Who was given the dark blue lunchbox? <laughs> Who had it in their backpack when they left for school that morning? One child said, it was in my backpack. Another child said, no, it was in mine, and I went the extra mile to give it to you to make sure you had your lunch. As the argument continued, you'll be shocked to hear that everyone doubled down and named specific memories of when they knew theirs was indeed the dark blue lunchbox. By the way, the other one is light blue, so clearly no one could have been mistaken at <laughs> this moment. Drew was very patient. He was letting each child tell their story multiple times while trying to encourage calm responses and listening. I, however, was not very patient. <laughs> I ended up interrupting the stories when I was hearing them for the third time. <laughs> and I said, look, both of you feel certain you had the dark blue lunchbox, but can you both admit that there is a 1% chance that you are wrong? One kid piped up, I will if they will. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, further exasperated, said, no, each of you do it for yourself. Sometimes you're going to be wrong about things you were sure of. You need to be able to receive it, 
even if it's unlikely. Do it for your own heart. I think I confused them more than anything, but they got the message that mom was really worked up about at least having the veneer of humility. <laughs> with people and with the Lord, even more so than lunchboxes, it is good to have an openness, a humility about who we know them to be. Someday those same kiddos with the blue lunchboxes will tell me they love or hate something they used to feel differently about. They will share their passions and gifts with me, and as well as I know them, I will at some places be surprised by what they say. And I could respond, I raised you, and you do not like that. Or, I have known you all your life. That's not what your true gifts are. But that would be incredibly presumptuous of me. Likewise, Jesus will let us know more of who he is, will tell us more about his mission, and not always in ways we prefer. Will we receive it? Will he find in us a more receptive audience? He will bring his kingdom faster or slower or differently than we would want. Will we let him alter the terrain or will we attempt to jettison him off the hill on which our life is built? So first we find a presumptuous audience, but we see, secondly, that they are met by an audacious Jesus. At the beginning of our passage, Jesus read Isaiah and alluded to himself as this awaited Messiah. This is not what seems to have turned the crowd murderous. It's debated how the crowd felt at that part exactly, and the debate ranges from arguments to they were really pleased but unsure to they're already starting to chafe at this moment. And wherever they were in that spectrum, we can at least say his first reading and teaching hadn't yet ignited them, hadn't yet given them the urge to pick up rocks. So let's look at the words that put them over the edge. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus has the audacity to say, I know what you're thinking. You're going to ask me to prove myself by doing some mighty work? And the answer is no. He names their presumption, and it's the presumption that hometowns have for their prophets. It's not all that audacious to show up as a healer. It is, however, audacious to show up as a prophet. 
It's not audacious to be an easy-to-like guy who knows how to help the people around him experience a deeper sense of wellness with a light touch. But a prophet? A prophet says, I will make God known to you in ways of which you are currently ignorant. A prophet does bring healing, but often it's the kind of healing that feels like having a broken bone reset. And what examples does Jesus use for those who are likely to receive the prophet's healing? Gentiles. Not only that, a Gentile woman and a Gentile leper who had enslaved an Israelite girl. It flies in the face of the mission of their town. Galilee of the Gentiles is what they hear from Jesus. I love the stories he uses, though, because not only are they demographically wild examples, but they are audacious stories in and of themselves. We don't have the space to explore these encounters more in depth today, but the widow Elijah visited was about to make final loaves of bread for herself and her son before they died from the famine in that land. And Elijah had the nerve in that moment to say, make me one too. And she had the audacity to do it. God provided abundant flour and oil so this widow and her son lived. Naaman, the Syrian, was accustomed to honor as a great military leader. And Elisha had the audacity to not meet him personally or offer elaborate hospitality, but instead sent a messenger. This messenger told Naaman to wash himself seven times in the Jordan River, notably dirty water. It came as an insult to Naaman, who almost didn't do it, but he did. And he was restored, cured of his disease. When people respond to the audacity of a prophet with audacious faith, wonderful things happen. This is the invitation Jesus gives to these men at the synagogue in Nazareth. It's an invitation to faith over presumption, faith over pedigree. In this age of echo chambers, we have just as much opportunity to insulate ourselves around a singular narrative as Nazareth did. Where are we positively creating spaces in our lives and in our relationships to hear the present audacious words of Jesus? How might we respond in audacious, active faith? Jesus spoke the audacious words of a prophet, and for many of us, this lesson might be enough. We get the point. Jesus speaks truth, and we need to respond in faith to it. And while I would never deny that sentiment, I do want to add to it. I want to add that these words did not come disembodied. To see the whole picture, we must take time to look at not just the words of Jesus, but at the anointed one himself. 
If we only looked at the words of Jesus and didn't take into account his person, we might see something like an action scene where the men at the synagogue, like stacks of unlit explosives, sit ominously around the edge. And here comes Jesus pouring gasoline with his words and lighting the match and then walking away as it explodes. He is unscathed, of course, because he's the righteous hero. Thanks be to God, Jesus is not an action hero. Just as the people knew Jesus, so Jesus knew them. He knew who in that room suffered loss or indignity growing up. He was at their wedding. He knew who encouraged him after Joseph's passing, saying his father taught him well and he'd make a living. Jesus knew who among them might have otherwise spoken at the synagogue that Sabbath if he had not stood to speak. The familiarity, the intimacy goes both ways. These were his friends, teachers, clients, and mentors. This was his community. While Jesus gave words that were hard for them to hear, we can't overlook that he showed up. In his words, he intimated that he knows that they will reject him, and yet he showed up. He could have protected himself physically and emotionally from the heartbreaking scene that unfolds, from the violent rejection of his community. And yet he would not withhold from them the good news, and he would not withhold from them himself. He loved them. It is at Nazareth Jesus got his first taste of the murderous rejection that would lead to his crucifixion. He did not spare himself that pain and danger, and he did not betray who he is in the mission of God. And Luke, the use of the word truly is reserved for solemn moments. Truly, Jesus says here. He is not some action hero who delights in blowing the place to smithereens in his righteousness. Jesus is the prophet, the anointed one, who draws near to those he loves and gives God's good and audacious invitation at cost to himself. He walks away unscathed here that later he might offer himself completely on the cross. It is that same Jesus through the Holy Spirit that draws near to you, his loved ones, today. He knows you. One of our readings said, before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. He knows the contours of your past, your present, and your future. In just a few moments, we're going to enter into an extended time of prayer, a time seeking God's healing. We'll begin our prayers with a, a litany for healing, and then men and women will be available around the room, ready to pray for and with you.
Online, there will be an opportunity to receive prayer as well with links posted and breakout rooms available. The worship team will play for us, and you are free to sit or kneel or assume whatever posture might help you be present to the Spirit. We know from our passage today that the character of Jesus can be trusted, and healing is a part of his work and mission, setting the oppressed free, recovery of sight for the blind. The ministry of Jesus and the visions God gives of his kingdom are quick to help us know that he desires our healing, our wholeness. I am not as intimately acquainted as the Spirit with where you are in need today. But I can tell you, he is a good physician. And his ways and means of healing and the words that he has to offer are as varied as there are people in this room and people on the planet. For the people in Nazareth, they needed a prophet's healing in that moment. But we see Jesus throughout the Gospels, and we see Jesus throughout the testimony of the church bringing healing in a variety of ways. Sometimes it's the prophet's healing. Sometimes it's reaching out a hand and touching the leper and saying, I will be clean. I don't know what healing the Lord has in store for you today, but I do know that he is competent, he is able, and he is good. There may be something audacious the Spirit asks of you in this room or of you online at home today. Maybe it's the audacity to not have this prayer time alone, but to ask someone to pray with you, a prayer minister, a friend. It could be for you that receiving prayer puts you in a physically or emotionally uncomfortable place that's too visible, too vulnerable, the audacity. Maybe it feels audacious that you would pray yet again for someone or for a situation that has not seen movement. Press into the audacity. There may be an obvious need in your life and you come knowing what healing or what inbreaking of the kingdom you desire. Or maybe you just showed up to this and this is already a bit much. If you come today not knowing or feeling a little unprepared, I want to encourage you that God is not caught off guard by this moment. I invite you, even in the first moments of silence, to read Jesus' words in verses 18 and 19 and ask God what he might want to say to you today. Wherever you are this morning, Let us look to the God who shows up in love and truth, who does not withhold himself from us, even in our brokenness, but offers himself for our healing. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.